coming to get you, Barbara. Oh, that's creepy. <laughs> I love it, though. Now me, I not only drink really, I really drink. We are Buzz on Movies. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, to Buzz on Movies. I'm Teddy. I am Matt. And we are movies. We are movies. We're here this week to discuss with you uh, the Quentin Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but also some recent items of movie news. And we're just here to share our love of movies with you, as always. Yeah, we sure are. It's good to be back. It's uh, been a been a minute. Um, yeah. <laughs> we've been a, so. we've had a bit of a hiatus as we have in the past sometimes. Um, but we're here again and we're going to try to dedicate ourselves to, uh, doing this a little more regularly from now on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get back to normal now. I think, I think we can do it. I believe in us. So since we've last talked to you, there's been a lot going on in the world of movies and there's definitely a lot that we want to talk about. Uh, so some recent movie news that's come across our table recently. Uh, I love that know, come across our table as though we're being passed like press releases or something. You know, we are uh, getting news directly. People are just begging us to talk about these issues and we're we're just swamped. We're we're overwhelmed with all these things, but we're, we're going to try to deal with a few of them here. Um, so first of all, everyone knows if they've been listening to the podcast for a little while that we're We've been big proponents of movie pass in the past. Um, not so much these days because we both canceled our subscriptions, but um, we're still here to talk about movie pass issues because there's still a lot going on apparently. Uh, so recently there was this news item that came out that at one point in movie passes history, uh, namely in the last few months, I think, uh, they were changing people's passwords so that they couldn't log into their account to get tickets for a movie. <laughs> it's a truly bonkers thing to have done. Like, it's completely bad shit. And the fact that they thought that they would get away with it permanently and nobody would know? Like, what? <laughs> I, I honestly can't believe it. But at the same time, we've seen some really crazy stuff from MoviePass in the last couple of years. So it's like, all right, sure. Of course they do something like this. You know, we've seen some really crazy shit. Yeah, but has anything been so outright, like, basically evil? Like, that's like, I mean, like, there's like not even like a... A slight defense of that like there's no way to defend it it's just like they they do things like suddenly cut off everybody's movie access right before a big movie comes out sure yeah they oh god they they would just pretty much cancel anyone's account if they use it more than a couple times a month I, I don't know. Like the whole thing, it started out as a really good deal. I mean, back when we first signed up, uh, I guess 
somewhere around August of 2017, right? Mm-hmm. It was a really good deal. They they paid for all your movie tickets, no questions asked. Uh, any pretty much any theater. We saw a ton of movies off of that. Sure um, did. We got a good deal, and when the deal started drying up, we both backed out. Right. But like it was pretty clear at a certain point that they were going to be doing some shady shit along the way. And sure enough, it seems that things have been moving in a shadier and shadier direction. It's really, I mean, yeah, it's bleak. They really, they went like full, like super villain. They just like, it sucked. <laughs> yeah. It's, and I mean, it's like, of course, it's just like their own fault. They're the only people they have to blame. Like they, they didn't create like a tenable service. So that's yeah. on them, you know? Yeah. I mean, we'd all love it if you could just see every, any movie you wanted in any theater for just nine ninety nine a month. Right. But like we, everybody knew that that wasn't sustainable and just you know, maybe they, they thought they could get people in and draw them in with that price point, but then they should have shifted to something a little more sustainable rather than just trying to rip people off. Right. You know, like they they could have just increased the price or something or decreased the availability, but like just trying to just fucking rob people, that's not cool at all. Uh, no, it's not. Yeah. And but, that's essentially what they've done here. Yeah. But um glad to say, at least for the two of us, we made a quite a profit off of those movie past days. <laughs> we, oh yeah, I saw so many movies. <laughs> we definitely paid a lot less than the movies that we saw and we got out in time. And we hope that those of you out there who are still with Movie Pass are still finding a way to make it profitable for you honestly if you're still with movie pass you should leave by now yeah if if you're still there like hopefully you've got some way of getting around all these barriers but otherwise like you should really get out they're they're not showing any signs of improving i mean they'll probably sell your sensitive data soon like they Um, seem like they're they'd be on board with that 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 always seemed like it was a risk as well Right. But for a while, it was worth it. It was like, okay, yeah, they might sell my data, but I'm still getting like hundreds of dollars worth of movies a month for like $10. So, you know, whatever. Equifax already stole all of our data anyway. So that's true. Yeah. Who cares? Um, Anyway. Yeah. So movie pass. Once again, get your shit together. You're probably not going to, but come on, let's do it. No, I doubt they're uh, ever going to get it together. So, um, next side of news. Um, I don't know if this really counts as news, but it definitely counts under our our traditional coverage of movies that we did not expect to do as well as they are doing. Oh, yeah. Um, the new Dora the Explorer movie. The new Dora the Explorer movie is inexplicably sitting at an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, I don't, I just feel like I've seen the trailer (laughs) a number of times because I actually do see movies and it's like got like fart jokes and like 
Dora is like, I don't know, being weird and dorky. Like none of it. I don't understand how this is making like what's good about this movie. It doesn't make any sense. It looks terrible. Like <laughs> everything um, about it. Yeah. Uh the when I saw the trailers, we we definitely shared this around a little bit. Um the trailers when they first came out just looked absurd. Like it looked like a a parody of what a Dora the Explorer movie would look like. It's like, ha ha. Ah, I'm talking and explaining Spanish words to the audience. Ha ha. Like, I don't uh, it, It's crazy. And yet, apparently, people are, are enjoying this movie. Immensely. And like, I... I don't know, like, I could have, I thought maybe, like, a, a sort of satirical take on it could be funny. Like, the idea of, like, it being weird that Dora's talking to the camera and, like, explaining right. things. Yeah. That could be funny, but it didn't look like the trailer really leaned into it that heavily. There was, like, one joke, and then the rest was just Dora being, like, a gung-ho explorer trying to find the city of gold. Yeah. Um, so, I was like, huh, this is a very strange, I couldn't even tell from the trailer is really what direction it was trying to go. It was very difficult. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that there's been, <laughs> there's been a number of different uh, Twitter forces pushing people to either see or not see this movie. Um, first of all, there was, there was a movement after the shooting in El Paso to, see this movie to support Hispanics in this country. Yeah, because there's nothing quite like seeing Dora the Explorer as yeah. a means of social activism. I don't know. Uh, somehow I think there's better ways to like make your opinion known. But, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. if you, if you, <laughs> you want to see this movie anyway, please go see it. But I don't right. know. Right. And like, obviously, representation is important. And like, that's exciting that it mm. has apparently good representation or whatever. But I, yeah, in terms of like supporting, like, following the tragedy that was El Paso, that's like an absurd. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't think Dora the Explorer is going to fix that. Like, no. <laughs> unfortunately, that's not the way things are going. Also, much more. Even more disturbingly than that, um, there's been a number of complaints online <laughs> that uh, this Dora the Explorer movie was not sexual enough because the lead is supposed to be a teenage girl. Ah! And honestly, just kill me over this. But, like, seriously, why, why does the Dora the Explorer movie need to be sexual at all? It's like, Dora the Explorer. I don't, yeah, I don't care if she's a teenager. This is that's not part of the story at all. If, like if your reaction to seeing Dora the Explorer in the City of Gold, Lost City of Gold, whatever, live action adaptation is that it's not sexy enough. You need to seek treatment, please. That's not normal. That's a weird thought to have. It's gross. <laughs> you need to go. Dora is a child. I don't yeah. care if Dora's a teen movie, by the way. Dora's still, like, what? She's, like, 14? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't care. It's still weird that you thought it's that. It's weird. So, it's gross. You probably are a pedophile. Like, <laughs> you just need to not do that. 
There's so, so many more outlets for that. Like we we don't need to see it in the door of the Explorer movie. And you know, like at we previously discussed on our last episode, the Spider-Man movie doesn't have a lot of teen sexuality in it outside of teens being like, I like you. I like you too. And that's just fine. So why do we need it in the door of the Explorer movie? Why that's endure? Ridiculous. If that's what you want, just go watch Wild Things 2 or whatever and <laughs> call it a day. Like, uh, yeah. Like, okay. Watch American Beauty. Um, oh, oh no, <laughs> Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Okay, All I'm right. thinking about Kevin specifically, but yeah, okay. It's rough. It's very rough. Online people, get your shit together. That's There's really disturbing. I hadn't seen that <laughs> faction of um of criticism, and that upsets me. That upsets me so immensely. It's like on a like my soul is in pain. It's a, like I feel like it's probably just like two people, but it's the sort of thing like it just gets amplified by social media. Oh, right, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. So weirdos out there, you know who you are. Get over it. Get your shit together. We still don't know whether this movie's worth watching or not. Maybe we'll go see it if we have uh, nothing better to do. But I mean apparently I it's good. So like people are saying good things, so that's always it. Like I don't know. I, I like when a movie comes out that's based on a huge franchise and it's at least a little bit more than a cynical cash grab. Um, it's it's nice to see that it might be an actually good movie as well. That's crazy to think about. Absolutely nuts. Who knows? Uh, and if I have the time, maybe I'll go check it out. But, you know, there's there's a lot to be seen these days. There is. There's a lot. There's a whole lot. <laughs> I'm very behind. So, so. Um, so let's let's move into an item that I don't know as much about, but you seem to know a little bit more about. Uh, something about the recent Fast and the Furious movie. Um, yeah. So <laughs> hopefully by now, anyone who listens to this probably follows movie news. So maybe you're all aware, but if not... It came out like maybe a week and a half or so ago, um, maybe two, that the stars of the Fast and Furious franchise, specifically Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Vin Diesel, Jason Statham, those those characters, um, have it in their contracts. There are stipulations that they can't lose fights and that <laughs> not one of them can look less badass than one of the others. So... This made a splash on social media because it's fucking ridiculous. It's like, <laughs> it's like <laughs> testosterone driven masculinity, like taking on a new form of life. That's so somehow crazy. being contractually set in stone. It um, sounds almost like a WWE contract or something where it's like i can only lose a fight if like i'm completely overpowered by multiple people and then i have to win the next fight or something like that like this really seems like a professional wrestling type scenario i mean it basically is right like at that point and like that's why you get things like um i remember one of the first articles um 
that brought that like broke this news was like this is why we get things like in some movies like for example vin diesel throws the rock through a wall and then the rock immediately gets up and punches vin diesel through a wall like it's like (laughs) one for one and it's like it's completely insane and it's like you know first of all i like these actors in general um yeah especially the rock i think everybody likes the rock but it definitely doesn't cast them in a good light it makes them look like the most insecure (laughs) like people like out in the in the biz right now like it's like really you you can't lose a fight once like but uh, this does kind of connect to our main movie discussion of tonight which is once upon a time in hollywood um this actually is kind of an undertone in the movie of rick dalton's career where like hit he starts being the guy who always gets beat up on in movies or uh tv shows and then like that starts hurting his career so yeah this is actually kind of interesting parallel here they i i i can sort of understand that they feel like they can't be seen as losing all the time or else that'll hurt their brand right yeah i understand that they have a brand to protect they want to keep making like Like, they still want to be the leading men in action vehicles, right? And so, like, they have to have, like, Mm -hmm. a certain image for that. Um, But it's weird because, like... I mean, Vin Diesel and Jane Statham keep a pretty low profile on average, I'd say. They're not people that we hear a lot of, like, random news about. We don't see them outside, like, movies themselves. Um, The Rock is a pretty public figure, Um like you know there's been talk of the rock running for office we all know that there was that time where he like registered like yeah i could see um, him doing like an arnold schwarzenegger type thing yeah i mean he registered a a potential campaign that one time um so you know he doesn't really i don't know like he's public enough to where he already i mean he doesn't look like I don't want to say vulnerable or invulnerable, but he doesn't like really come across as like some big tough guy outside of his movies. Like, it's like, I don't know what hit you think your brand is going to take. Like, <laughs> like we all already know you and like you like maybe like Jason Statham, who like is literally like, I know nothing about him other than the movies that he's in. Like, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like there's, there's gotta be something like, some sort of research that they see like if they see you losing in fights this many times in movies like they don't take you seriously as an action star or something like that because yeah like you see this sort of stuff a lot like action stars don't want to be seen losing they don't want to be seen on the bad end of things and right uh like i feel like this is a a really good example of it because you've got two like high-end stars in the same movie against each other and like neither of them is basically allowed to lose they pretty much have to be evenly matched the whole way through so you know that that sort of causes a bit of a limitation it does because then like it's really hard for like to be in this movie franchise where like i mean they basically can't really be like opposing one another because then nobody can ever win or lose like it's just like 
they have to be like basically either on the same side or eventually end up on the same side, you know? Um, so it like creates narrative like constraints. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, who wants to see a fight where people just nobody ends up on top? They just keep fighting for until oblivion. Until know? they're distracted by something else that makes them like stop fighting. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I haven't seen we haven't seen the latest Fast and Furious movie. Um so it could still be fun. I'm sure I'm sure it's fun. I mean it's it's yeah. a Fast and Furious movie. The, I feel like above all, the Fast and the Furious movies manage to be fun. And right. yeah, w- which a lot of action franchises don't know how to do like even after multiple installments to still keep the fun and excitement in there um and that's what fast and furious is good at doing because like and look at something like transformers you know oh god i prefer not to (laughs) they like they they really like fast and furious they've been able to like do crazy things and go over the top and still maintain audience attention. So I don't know. I think they can still keep it fun. Uh, even if they're trying to deal with their action stars, trying Having not to crazy, <laughs> fragile egos. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> no, if, even if nobody's trying to lose, they can still find a way to make it fun. I think. And I mean, they do like, I mean, the, the movies have definitely been fun. It's just an interesting fact. The state of like action stars in Hollywood right now. Absolutely. Yeah. It's always interesting to look at like what goes on behind the scenes and why these sort of things play out the way they do. Right. But, you know, just keep it in mind. Next time you see a Fast and Furious movie and you realize that these people never lose. There's a reason for that. Yeah. They have literally made it so contractually they can't lose (laughs) exactly yeah um so speaking of big franchises we all know anyone who's listened to this podcast regularly knows that we're big saw fans and uh we have a little more information on the latest saw installment it's very Uh, small it's not a lot of information very very small (laughs) bit of information this one uh this would be Saw 9, correct? Yeah, this would be the ninth Saw because there were seven main Saw movies then Jigsaw. And now this would be Saw 9. As we all know, it's coming. It's written by Chris Rock, or at least the story is. Yeah. Uh, it will also star him. So um, the news in question is just a little tidbit of information. That's that the working title of this movie is The Organ Donor. <laughs> Ooh. Um... I don't even know what to make of that. Like, yeah, (laughs) it's such a ridiculously like pretty cheesy name. I mean, I'm sure it'll change. I'm sure it will not be left with that. That's just the working title. Yeah. And honestly, like it might not even have like a real title itself. You know, for most of Saw, we haven't seen the movies have a separate title. We've had like Saw 1. I mean, just saw saw two 
Saw 3, Saw 4, Saw 5, etc. Um, and towards the end, we got some with actual subtitles like Saw, the final chapter. But really, a Saw movie doesn't need to have a separate title or subtitle. Yeah, but in this case, it's interesting that they chose to give it one because they could have just said Saw 9. That could be the working title. Definitely. Um, Um, But they did not do that. Yeah, and by publicizing this title, they're definitely trying to give us a bit of a hint as to where things are going. So, I mean, who knows where they might go with organ donor. It could be sort of a you know, healthcare based thing like they did with Saw Six. Wow, healthcare saw revisited. I'm in. Yeah. Oh. Any anything else with the healthcare saw theme we're totally in for. This I one think. is actually the new healthcare saw is actually just the Democratic primary debates on a loop. <laughs> the eight hour movie and you just yeah. have them answering questions from uh, Jake Tapper. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's just see John Delaney in a crucifix trap. I'm I'm all on board with that. Um, wow but uh, you know <laughs> big brother leave us alone <laughs> um so you know there's there's definitely a bit of a hint here as to where they're going we we don't necessarily know where that hint might be leading it might be in a healthcare direction um it could be if we focus on the organ portion of it it could be like a musical type thing like, um, if you've seen that part of uh, Adventures of Baron von Munchausen, where they have a organ that the music is based off people getting hit with stuff inside of a machine. So, who knows? It could be something like that. You're right. It could be. Or it could just be about how people are going to be, like, brutally eviscerated. But... For their organs, yeah. <laughs> this could be um, another installment of uh, Repo, the genetic opera. That it could be. I did think about Repo, a genetic oh, opera. Yes. Uh, we have to discuss that at some about, point. Maybe the main victim is just somebody who's trying to donate his old organ to a cathedral, you know? Grave robber. Grave <laughs> robber. Oh. I do hope that even if they don't go with the organ donor as a name, which I, of course, hope they do not. um, I do hope that we find out very explicitly why that was the working title. I feel like it'll be funny. Yeah. I feel like it's like an inside joke that we just don't get yet. Um, I would like to know more about that. Definitely. We will all find out collectively on May 15th, 2020, I guess. um, When we can finally see this movie. That seems to be coming up closer and closer, you know? Yeah, it was uh, It was originally going to be in, like, October of that year. But they moved it up to a summer release so that it didn't have to compete with Halloween Kills. So, there we Ooh. are. Yeah. Which is also another ridiculous name, just so we can all put that out there. <laughs> Halloween Kills is absurd. Halloween Kills, yeah. I don't even know what, I don't even know what to think of that. It doesn't make any sense. And it's like, I mean, I have a lot of issues with like, I don't know, Michael like died. Like now I feel like they're just going to like the franchise is going to go the same direction as it did before where it doesn't make any sense. So, <laughs> um, you know, but that 
that's part and parcel with these big horror franchises anyway. You know, they don't have to make sense. They just have to be scary. Yes. Yes. Uh, scary is a tall word. That's, that's the approach that the, um, that the production companies will take to it anyway. You're we not wrong. Have, we may have different uh, beliefs out here in the movie-watching community, but, you know, that's that's how the movies get produced. We just watch them. That's true. You're right. We just watch them and talk about them. And uh, one last movie that we may or may not be watching before we get into the main crux of our conversation today, um, the... Live action Lady in the Tramp movie. I'm going to go with not watching 200, Alex. <laughs> um, Hopefully not watch. I mean, uh, God. I got to say, I'm curious, shall we say. Are you? Have I'm you not a, been burned enough? I'm a little, I've, I've been burned so many times by these Disney live action movies. Um, and those of our audience who listened to our most recent episode about the Lion King would definitely know that we are both very uh, against any more of these Disney live action remakes. But honestly, at this point, I'm just like, how are they even going to make this work? I just don't, I just don't see it happening, especially because if you look at what they're trying to do with this movie, Okay. It's basically just real dogs. They just got real dogs. Oh yeah, well absolutely. They're not even trying to like animate them to make them seem like they have emotions and stuff like that. They're just real dogs. It's basically just uh Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. Yeah. And if you look at the cover of the latest issue of Disney's D23 magazine. D23. Jesus yeah. Christ. It's it's the leads for the Lady and the Tramp movie. And I we're going to link to this in the comments for this episode. It it looks ridiculous. It's literally just two dogs just like next to each other. You can't see anything in their eyes or like the emotions that they're feeling or that they're in love or anything because they're literally just two dogs next to each other. I mean, <laughs> we knew this from the, I mean, when Disney did the Lion King, you can't see any emotion like, and it's going to be the same. They're not going to be able to make that happen. They're just dogs. Yeah. Is this but, movie, do we know, is it CGI? I don't think, like, at least, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of CGI in there, but my understanding is that the dogs themselves are real dogs and that they're, like, just filming real dogs and that they're going to make some adjustments where needed with the CGI. Um, kind of like, you know, like the Airbud movies or something like that. But, so, but do the dogs... Okay. I just have so many questions about this movie. 
it's going to be hard. It's it's going to be a rough watch. I'm going to say that right right now. Even if it's like relatively good, it's going to be a rough watch. It doesn't are, seem like Disney believes in it since they're launching it on their streaming service, not in the theaters. Yeah. So that's another thing that's a little troubling to me. Like this is the first movie that Disney's ever just been like, all right, we're only putting this on streaming, you know? Well, other than some sequels. Yeah. I mean, like back in the day, they used to do stuff direct to video, but nowadays, I don't know, something this big going direct to streaming. It's definitely weird. It's really weird. Yeah. It it hints at sort of a strange direction that they might go in where they like might release a large portion of their catalog direct to streaming and only put like one or two of the most attractive properties into a theatrical release. Right. Which is a bit troubling. I mean the we we have yet to see what a um a studio exclusive streaming platform might look like because none of them have been that big yet but disney certainly has the power to make a streaming platform that is powerful enough to compete with other services like Netflix and Amazon Video or Hulu or whatever. Well, they don't have so, to compete with Hulu. They own Hulu now. Yeah. So Disney Disney Plus is going to bundle with Hulu and ESPN Plus because Disney owns all of this. So they don't have to compete with Hulu. Um, they just have to compete with Netflix and Amazon and they won't have any trouble doing that. Now, yeah. The only, I mean, okay. I think Netflix is sort of like in hot water right now. I don't, I don't see how Netflix can survive against Disney Plus and Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Um, Disney Plus having the power of being Disney, uh, and having Hulu and ESPN Plus under its belt are huge, huge wins for it. The price is twelve ninety nine a month. That's crazy, um, given how much you're getting. Disney Plus will feature Marvel and Star Wars, which already attracts everybody. Yeah. So then Amazon Prime really, I mean, that streaming service is great, I guess. But really, the reason people have it is for the shipping. And there's no, I mean, there's just like no way to compete with that on Netflix's, like from Netflix's standpoint. So it's like sort of like they're like at a, I don't know, they have to change something, I guess. Um, yeah, Netflix is in a bad situation right now. I would be very sad to see Netflix like decide that they can't do this anymore because Netflix was like started it all. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look back at companies that have really innovated in the streaming area, Netflix is the one. Right, like everyone else, like Amazon joined on because they had video stuff, and but their main stuff has always been shipping, and. Disney has always been content first and then, you know, they've moved into online streaming Netflix, their stuff is their big thing has always been providing content to the consumer either through their mail DVDs or 
more modernly through streaming. And I've been a Netflix subscriber for a very long time. Back Absolutely. Since Ages. the DVD days. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I would hate to see them be uh, be pushed out by this sort of move. But, yeah, it, it is it is hard to see how the companies are where the companies are going to go moving forward with this sort of thing. It's like Disney's really the big first test of this sort of platform where it's the company that produces the material, providing it directly to the consumer streaming online uh, with no barriers whatsoever. And we just have to see is that going to be successful if it is and if it is so successful that it crowds out other platforms then um we're gonna have to see how the market reacts to that because there's a, a lot of volatility in this situation right now there is it's just getting harder and harder i mean and it, well it's going to get harder and harder i should say for something like Netflix to survive in a world where like everyone is making their own streaming service. Like the specifics like Disney is making one NBC is making their own. Like, yeah. like it's mm -hmm. going to get harder because Netflix isn't going to have the rights to the things that sort of kept it like that gave it its appeal. Um, yeah. You know, Netflix losing all of the Disney licenses, like that's going to yeah. be big. They're losing Netflix Disney, losing everything from NBC, losing like, friends, losing the office, stuff like that. Right. Um, and and to their credit, they've they've definitely seen this coming. They've been making um, their own original content as a priority for the last few years, right? And of course, like some of their original content is as much like in the cultural conversation as any any other TV show. Like Stranger Things is like at a fever pitch, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, like that's a huge deal. House of Cards was there for a long time. Everybody like just mm -hmm. knew House of Cards. Like, yeah, they just uh, finished up Orange is the New Black, and that was a huge hit. Right, um, a big topic of conversation. Right. Uh, so even like they're like ones that maybe didn't get as much success as others ended up being huge cultural conversations. Like Sense Eight was a big deal. Oh yeah, got canceled. You know. Oh, I um, love Sense Eight. So. Netflix has definitely prepared, but some of its preparation, I mean, I'm, I'd be curious about what goes on with like the Marvel TV shows that, ne I mean, what's happening to those? Those were Netflix exclusives produced with Netflix oversight. And <laughs> now yeah. they're going to be on the Disney plus, I assume like, <laughs> I think they're uh, all ending, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But they'll still they... be available. The Marvel catalog is going to be available they on should... Disney plus. Yeah. But I, I mean, at least some of that stuff, like, I don't think Netflix is going to lose the rights to stream shows they've actually produced. Right. It's just weird. It's it's definitely going to be a strange, I don't know. I'm ready for this, like, experiment with all of the different studios and channels and stuff having their own service to, like, fail miserably somehow. Um, yeah. I just feel like at this point, you're going to be paying $12.99 for Disney and then $9.99 for NBC and then keep your $12.99 Netflix subscription. And like at a certain point, it's like, why the fuck don't I just have a cable package now? Like, yeah. I so, mean, you can get live TV streaming 
for fifty dollars a month. So at that point, just get that. Like, yeah. So I don't think like Disney is going to be hurt, but I do think that one of the major studios or streaming services is going to fail at some point in the next year or two, and it's going to cause companies to like take a second look and maybe take a step back in the streaming area streaming wars it's just like gonna me, backfire. i mean ultimately it's gonna have to backfire when everything becomes so like separate and like siloed out like it's gonna be like oh man wouldn't it be nice if there were a service that bundles all of this together so you don't have to pay like yeah. six different well, fees every month and then everybody like oh wait that's a thing it was yeah. called cable there's no way that. that people are gonna pay like 12 dollars a month to every studio that produces content just to get their new movies and TV shows. Well, what it really is, is a way for like somebody like a Disney to like crowd out all of its competition. Like, like if Disney can win this, then ultimately what it means is that they become the only one that people pay for, you know, like that's their idea. So it's like Disney and HBO would be like the only competitors is what they want. It's like sad. Like Disney is trying to own everything. Disney is evil. Um, I know I like Disney movies, but Disney is evil in a big way i'm i'm very much in the same place you know i mean i i really love disney like not only their movies but i'm a big fan of the theme parks i'm like a super right. disney theme park geek i try to go there as much as possible but it's still hard to reconcile the image of the company that you've grown to know and love with the kind of stuff that they do nowadays trying to crowd out the competition, trying to create their own streaming platform that'll destroy everyone else and make their movies less accessible than they've ever been. So it's it's hard. It's 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 a difficult line to walk. Right. It just no. sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still a big Disney fan. You know, I I don't always have to be a fan of the direction that they're going right now as a company but I still love their content and uh, yeah, I still like what they do. They still have a lot to offer. Of course they do. I just wish they would stop trying to have a monopoly on the entertainment industry. Yeah. Moving on from recent news. All right. Why don't we, we talk about the one movie that we've both seen recently. Uh, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The new yeah. Quentin Tarantino movie. Oh, I'm so glad that we've got a new Quentin Tarantino movie here in 2019. What a great moment for us to have arrived at. You act like it's been like a drought. It it always feels like it has. Honestly. Does it? When was the last one? 2015? Yeah, but he always takes his time between movies. Yeah, he does. He does. But, you know... It it I feel the same way whenever a like a big director in my personal canon comes out with a new movie. You know, it's like, oh, there's finally another Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Uh, there's finally another Quentin Tarantino movie. Whatever. Anything like that. Yeah, of course. That's how I am with Martin Scorsese, you know. Um Yeah. Uh, is Scorsese uh Scorsese puts out stuff every now and then but yeah it's it feels similar you know you're you're just waiting for the next one yeah i mean i guess um 
it did feel like it'd been a while. Um, I mean, the last four years, the last two years in particular, have felt mind-numbingly long at times. Um, <laughs> For various reasons. Yeah. Not really. Imagine to what might have happened two and a half-ish years ago now. Um, yeah. It might have made things feel impossibly long and terrible for that whole time. Um, right. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah, it definitely has felt like it's been a while, especially since I know you disagree with this, but I didn't love the hateful eight. So it Ugh. felt like it'd been a long time for me because I hadn't had a Tarantino movie that I like felt passionately about in a while. Um, I did like the hateful eight. Uh, I thought that was a lot of fun. I'm still waiting to watch the, unedited version or like the less edited version that's on netflix right now there's like a mini series version that's out right now oh that's cool i didn't know that yeah they, there's a mini series version i think it's like four parts that are each an hour and a half long so it's like <laughs> okay it's a, it's a very long like the movie itself is already very long yeah but it's this like what, is, three hours yeah it's very long that like there was an intermission in it when they when i went to see it and it still felt like a long movie and this is a even longer version so i like i really have to like jive myself up to sit down and watch this thing but i i'm interested in because i did like the theatrical version so you should watch it maybe you'll like it yeah uh, I'll definitely try to check it out. I'm a big Tarantino fan. Definitely. I mean, yeah, I generally I, do. I certainly won't hide that going into this. I'm a big, big Tarantino fan. He was one of the first directors that I really got into um, back in high school, checking out my DVDs off of the Netflix DVD service. Um, basically, I was checking out all of Robert Rodriguez's canon and uh, Quentin Tarantino's canon. I was just trying to catch up on the the two of them, see what they were doing. Um, and that's what really got me into film and filmmaking. And so I'm always indelibly devoted to the stuff that Quentin Tarantino puts out in a yeah, way. Yeah, of course. I mean, that makes sense yeah. to me. I feel like um, Tarantino is and this might sound like like i'm being shady but that's not true but i feel like tarantino is a gateway and an entry for a lot of like young and like new fans of film yeah i feel i feel like that's very common um which is not a knock on like his filmmaking like he's there's still a lot going on it's not like you know entry level or whatever that's not what i'm saying um it's Mm -hmm. just like yeah i feel like i feel like he has a sort of welcoming style it's it's easy to get into and there's so much to unpack in all of his movies that it's like easy to become like a passionate viewer of Tarantino films. Yeah. No, I, I think that Tarantino's basic vibe is that of someone who is just so much a fan of film and like so devoted to studying every aspect of every film that they watch that they had to go out there and produce films for himself. And that these are the films that resulted and a lot of them are, you know, recycled from other films and stuff because those are the films he liked watching. That's, that's the basic vibe I get from Tarantino is a film lovers film. 
Um, and there's all sorts of different ways that, that can be expressed in other films by other directors. Like obviously anyone who devotes their lives to making film loves films and loves watching films. But Tarantino always felt like specifically like a film fan who is making films. If you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I mean, of course he does. His movie is so like, his movies are so dense with like references to other movies and styles and genres. Like that's, that is just what the kind of movie he makes. It's impossible not to view him as a film fans filmmaker. Over, mate, what a film fans filmmaker. Yeah. Like that, that's literally who he is. And I think he would tell you that and be excited that you said that. Absolutely. I mean, he, he like he he has no uh pretensions of coming up with every idea on his own he'll readily tell anyone like where his inspirations come from where he stole each of these scenes from and like that that's commonly a criticism of some of his films is that like all this stuff came from a different film but he'll he doesn't hide that fact um he does borrow a lot from other films, but that he does it in his own unique style. And I feel like, you know, a lot of, a lot of other filmmakers borrow as well and don't get the same kind of crap for it. Of course. I mean, of course, like Tarantino, like is so dense with his borrowings. Like it's like, it's all dense, not meaning stupid, just like meaning that his movies are so packed with them. Like full um, of references. Yeah. Right. And so um, I think that it's easy to make Tarantino a target of it, but like film has been going on for years and years and years. It's very hard to make a movie and not be borrowing from or heavily influenced by some other movies. I, I just don't see how that, I mean, so Tarantino acknowledging what inspires him and what influences him to make the movies he makes is a good thing overall. Yeah. And also like, I think that it, another reason it's so effective as like a gateway filmmaker is that like, because of all of those references, a lot of people see them look up what they are and go out and watch these other movies that he's talking about. And he's, I mean, yes, he taught, I mean, he's inspired by some movies that a lot of people have seen, but he's also inspired by like genres that maybe aren't the most well-respected, you know, like, and so yeah. like, um, you know, I, we talked about this before we started recording. Like, he's this is a revenge movie in a lot of ways, and like he's heavily inspired by revenge movies. Clearly, you can see that just in his recent canon. Um, he's inspired by spaghetti westerns like crazy, which are, I mean, I don't know how many people our age that you can think of who know spaghetti westerns well. So like, yeah. if his movies like encourage people to seek out those sorts of genres and things like that, that's I only see that as a net positive. So, um, yeah. I mean, when I was first getting into watching Tarantino, um, when I was looking at the inspirations behind stuff like Kill Bill and Pulp Fiction, it inspired me to watch a lot of like 70s exploitation movies like uh, They Called Her One Eye and stuff like that that I never in a million years would have thought to watch otherwise. But I saw that it had been inspired it, it had inspired stuff that Tarantino had made. And as a result, like I checked out these movies and they were pretty interesting and fun to watch. Um, yeah, I feel like these, this sort of referential filmmaking can definitely, um, 
influence people to go check out older and more obscure films they might not otherwise see. Right. And I think that's a great thing. I love that. Definitely. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is definitely um, a great example of that. Um, As good as you could hope for, this movie really has a lot of references to older films and just like film going culture in general, just the whole culture of Hollywood around the sixties and seventies. And I feel like the movie in general just really does a great job of capturing that era and trying to get its audience interested in that strange period of Hollywood between the the old classic Hollywood of like the thirties and forties and the Hollywood that we know today. Right. I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And I think a lot of reviews have described this movie as like a love letter to Hollywood. And you get that sort of language in a lot of movie reviews. Like it's a love letter to X, Y, Z. Yeah. There are a lot of movies and a lot of directors who regularly get that. Like Del Toro gets that with like every movie he makes. It's a love letter to something. Um, Yeah. La La Land, I don't know how many reviews I had just sit through where somebody was like, this is a love letter to Hollywood. And I'd be like, <laughs> shut the fuck up. Yeah, like, I know. <laughs> I, think, I, I think La La Land was a lot more cynical towards Hollywood than people are uh, willing to accept. Of course it was. But, people like to pretend that La La Land is terrible right now. Like, I don't understand the backlash to La La Land. La La Land was a great movie, and it was definitely cynical towards Hollywood. Like <laughs> so, so cynical. I remember like, okay, so I was literally trying to pursue a movie career at the time when I went to see La La Land and I saw that movie and I was just like, fuck, I really need to think about what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> that is how, that is how heavy that movie is to someone who's trying to make a career in filmmaking it is really rough. Um, but <laughs> That aside, that aside, um, I really do feel that like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is really a love letter to Hollywood itself. Um, Like not just filmmaking in general, but specifically the people in Hollywood who are making these films. In addition, I feel like it follows Quentin Tarantino's trend over the last several years towards making revenge movies um, he made Django Unchained, sort of a, a revenge movie, theoretically, for slaves or African Americans getting revenge against their slave owners. Um, and he made Inglorious Bastards as a like a theoretical revenge movie for Jews or Americans getting revenge against the Nazis. Um, but I feel like this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is a revenge movie for Hollywood and all the people involved in it getting revenge against the Manson family who took one of their own, Sharon Tate. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I definitely think of it as a revenge movie. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like there's no other way to read it based on like the final act of this movie. Yeah. Um, that is some severely brutal revenge 
is inflicted upon the Manson followers. Um, <laughs> um, and I mean, it is, I mean, we're skipping around and we haven't even really, I guess everybody knows that once upon a time in Hollywood yeah. is a retelling of the Manson family murders of the Tate, you know, of, of Sharon Tate. Um, I yeah. doubt anybody listening doesn't know that. Let's make it clear, yeah, before before we go any further here that we're going to totally spoil this movie. Um and it's Right, it's and it hard. does matter. You might think that you know it the definitely story, matters. but it it's you don't know what's happening in this. <laughs> yeah, even um, if you know everything about the Manson family and the Sharon Tate murders, which I did going into this, uh right. you'll still be surprised as to what happens in this movie. Yeah, so I'd done very little reading about this movie uh going in other than like some very basic spoiler-free reviews. And the only thing I knew was that the final act was controversial. People had very different, differing takes on it. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what those takes were. But, <laughs> I mean, that final act is like, it's pure revenge fantasy. I mean, that's literally, there's no other way to read that. Um, yeah. And I think it's interesting. I mean, yes, of course, it's revenge on, like, what Manson did to, to you know, some of, somebody, I mean somebody who could have been one of Hollywood's greats. We all know Sharon Tate was, you know, Absolutely. very well loved um, and was a major star only getting more star power, you know? Yeah. Um, she was just on the upswing of her career, really. Right. And so, um, and that is a, I mean, it's a tragedy. What happened there, obviously for obvious reasons. Um, and so like, there's really no other, way to to see it i think it's also i don't know it's a, it's an interesting thought experiment to say what if that didn't happen that way and instead <laughs> they brutally fought back um yeah <laughs> um it's also kind of sad i mean it's sad when it ends and you think uh, what could have been different um you know just like not just in terms of like sharon tate's career but just like it is sort of often viewed as like, I mean, that things changed after that in Hollywood and celebrity culture uh, for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting to think about what, how different things could have been if some crazy cultists hadn't murdered some major celebrities. Um. Yeah. So um, it's kind of hard to like fully sum up what this movie is all about. Um, but to briefly explain it. So Leonardo DiCaprio plays like a, um, a TV slash movie star who's sort of on his way out. Uh, he's been in some Westerns and stuff, but he's sort of seeing his star fading away. Um, and also Brad Pitt is there playing his, stunt double who's seen his opportunities wash up a little bit as his um his public image has become a little less acceptable because people think that he may have murdered his wife seems which, likely that he did yeah it, it's <laughs> still it's it's unclear whether he did but it seems pretty likely that he did he's also and, though an undefined war hero we don't know what he did but he, he is a was war a war hero at some point um and also it's kind of accepted that he's just kind of generally an asshole on set and people just don't like to deal with him 
So his career is also a little bit washed up. Um, and they're kind of the two main characters of the story, but um, the, the their main connection to the whole Sharon Tate, Charlie Manson situation is that um, Brad Pitt's house is right next door to where Sharon you Tate mean, is. Living. You mean Leonardo's house? Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, yes, yes, right. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio's house as the uh as the Hollywood actor Rick Dalton. Yes, because His Brad ha- Pitt's character as the stunt double lives behind a drive-in theater yes. and okay. like a mobile home. Which I absolutely love that scene and we'll get to that in a second. But um yeah, so Leonardo DiCaprio lives in Beverly Hills um his well, his character Rick Dalton lives in Be- Beverly Hills, right next door to Roman Polanski's house, where Sharon Tate is living during this whole murder scenario that actually happened in real life. Um, Cliff Booth, who is Brad Pitt's character, does live in a trailer behind a movie, a uh, drive-in movie theater. Yes, <laughs> which. I absolutely love that scene. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was so cool. Just um, so we find that out when he's driving away from Rick Dalton's house. Um, it seems like, oh, he's just going to go see a movie tonight after he's finished driving his boss around, whatever. But he drives behind the theater and then just goes to his trailer there. I'm like, damn. Like, I would live in that trailer. He gets to see movies for free every night. That's awesome. That is pretty awesome. I mean, I would definitely live there too. I don't see why not. Oh, yeah. It looked, I mean, it looked like a lot of fun. He had like a, uh, a weight set out there in the yard and everything. So, and like chairs and stuff. So he could watch the movies from his yard without having to go into the theater it seemed like a lot of fun. And by the way, if y'all haven't been to a drive-in movie theater, you got to check that out. It is so much fun. It really, it, it just, it'll exceed any expectations that you have. It's yeah. A drive-in, a drive-in is great. Everybody should go to a drive-in. If you're a film fan, you should go to drive-ins so much. And I, I really love that this movie included a drive-in in the movie because especially like in the 60s and 70s it was still very much a part of the culture but that was about like the height of it that was when it started fading out after then and nowadays it's kind of hard to um to make a drive-in work and i really wish that more people would go and keep these places alive. Yeah, I uh, I do too, honestly. I love that this scene got put in there. I think that um, <laughs> it's also like a very funny, like almost like self-insert moment for Quentin Tarantino. Like that's just like, I feel like he would do that. He would live behind an old drive-in <laughs> theater in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, he even, <laughs> like, like he even had the drive-in play that little... Uh, coming attractions blooper that he likes to play before his own movies. Yes. Like 
like that actually played as part of kill bill so he he clearly is like involving his own references here in this drive-in scene he knows what he's doing but um he's just showing more of his love of cinema in this scene i think and like especially the history of film like he's yeah. very interested in the past of, of cinema i think the history of film and like different ways of seeing movies especially like in a drive-in or yeah i mean like, he's definitely big on going to the movies he, yeah he's a big fan of you absolutely going and seeing things on a big screen so that makes sense that he would want to like talk about going to the drive-in that would be very important to him i don't know the like the basic plot of this movie is pretty clear. Like um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are the next door neighbors to what would have been this horrible murder. Um, and there's a lot that goes on with them throughout the course of the movie that you get to see. Like one big scene that happens is Brad Pitt's stunt double character going, actually going to spawn ranch where um the manson family was living at the time yeah which i thought was very interesting Um, that's a weird scene it's a very weird scene um i felt like it actually felt pretty accurate to what i've heard about the whole relation on uh spawn ranch at the time like he actually he goes and tries to talk to George Spawn, who's the owner of the ranch, who he presumably knows because he was a stunt double like 10 years ago and he shot stuff at this ranch. And it all makes sense because like this guy would have been running this ranch back when it was a, a location for movie shoots. And this guy would have been there for that. But also, it's like at this point in time, George Bond is like completely out of it. He doesn't know what's going on. And these young hippies and everything have moved in and are basically completely in control of it. And he's just coming in, trying to like talk to George, be like, is everything okay? Like, is all this... Uh, uh, kosher or whatever and he's just like yeah oh whatever i don't know this is fine <laughs> <laughs> he is basically turning a blind eye to anything that's happening yeah he's absolutely. like oh whatever i'll just uh deal with that <laughs> but it he just there's, yeah there's what? parts of the scene like where he's going in there um it's like almost set up like a horror film, you know? Um, yeah, it's meant to be really unnerving. You're kind of like left thinking something bad's going to happen to him. Yeah, like every every step that uh, Brad's character moves past, like when he comes on to the side of the ranch and when he moves into the house and when he moves down the hallway and when he gets into the room that George is in, it's like the the score like increases in the tensity and everything gets like a little bit creepier and whatever. It's like, this is 
actually being set up sort of like a horror movie. Like things are getting scarier. Things are getting a little more tense or whatever. And eventually he ends up, you know, walking away just fine uh, because he he's satisfied that like, all right, George is maybe like a little old and crazy, but he's a voluntary participant in this or whatever. So he just walks away. But at the same time, it's like, damn, I really want to see Tarantino do a fucking horror movie now. Oh, <laughs> uh, wasn't that a news thing that came out recently too? Tarantino said maybe his next one will be horror. Yeah, he did say that. And I was like, please, please <laughs> do. Yes. Because that would definitely be interesting. Yeah, we also like, I don't really know what his thoughts are on horror, but I can only assume that as a genre enthusiast, he's a fan. So, Oh, absolutely. I mean, you so know, death, proof- it would be really fun to see what he yeah. does with that. But I do think this scene um, is extremely, I mean, this scene is weird. It definitely feels like the tone becomes markedly different than a lot of the rest of the film. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of once upon a time in Hollywood is typical, tarantino like taken to the max like snappy dialogue very funny not light necessarily that's the wrong word to use for tarantino ever but it does have like a buoyant feeling to it Mm -hmm. um and that scene is like definitely like there's like a lot more dread than tarantino usually instills in his film um brad pitt's character feels like like this weird like fish out of water moment like where he's like obviously been like cool and like like sort of like can take charge anywhere he's at like in this scene he's suddenly like definitely out of his element like he's in a place where it doesn't he he does not belong um (laughs) and so Uh like it's like this really weird like juxtaposition against the rest of the movie and for a moment you're like reminded like oh right i'm watching this movie that about a story that culminates with a series of really heinous murders (laughs) yeah Um, and it's like your first reminder after like maybe like what like an hour of film where it doesn't feel like that's the plot. Um, yeah, it'd be very easy to forget that that's what this mm-hmm. movie's about. And so in this scene, it's like like this really like stark reminder like oh by the way this is about this like terrible thing that happened. And then of course by the time the movie's over, it's like oh wait that was a mislead because that terrible thing doesn't even happen. <laughs> um, right. So. As just like an overall strange scene um, and very effective. It's a good scene. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it works really well. Like I had a fairly familiar idea of what the Manson family was like, especially their time at Spawn Ranch. But still, I was very much unsure um how Brad Pitt's character was going to come out of that scene. You know, like, right. It, it, it was already clear that Carantino was perfectly willing to play a little loose with the realities of that entire case. Yeah. So just a little loose. It was like, you know, who knows if Brad Pitt's character is going to make it out of this scene alive or not. In fact, we do know that there was a stuntman who was killed by the Manson family on Spawn Ranch during that time period. So 
it was kind of like, all right, so maybe within this reality, Brad Pitt's character is that stunt man who gets killed. Who knows? Right. Um, it, it could make perfect sense even that his character would die at this point. And yet at the same point, you're, you're like hoping that he makes it through because you've seen him like as a real person up till here. Right. And you're, you're hoping against hope that he makes it out against this fictionalized version of these horrible, horrible criminals and murderers that you've heard so much about at least the fictionalized version of that. Right. So, uh, like the whole movie is interesting like that. Um, Brad, Brad Pitt's character is just a lot of fun in general. He's just like sort of a rough, tough stunt double type guy. All he does is, um, just like violent stuff that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And, <laughs> and that's, that's what like the big payoff is for him in the, um, like the final act is that he's actually able to take down these, uh, these Manson cult members who are trying to kill people because, you know, he, like he's just, sort of prepare for this his whole life he's done fighting and whatever and he doesn't really take any of this stuff that seriously because he's just like what hey you guys are here all right i'll beat the shit out of you whatever um he just thinks it's all a joke right and then um (laughs) in the meantime leonardo dicaprio's character like he he's been struggling with his personality and with like his meaning in the earth. But the one thing he does have an attachment to is like his past movies and the stuff that he's, um, been a real star in. And (laughs) he does have that, uh, that flamethrower in his garage, apparently, which Which is amazing, which he uses to great effect and which is just such an incredible moment in the movie. Uh, oh yeah, that's great. Oh god damn. So yeah, so the flamethrower. Let, let's just start with that. The flamethrower is a big part of like the early part of the movie. Um it's shown that he uses the flamethrower in a movie that he was in a while back where he played some sort of American spy who was hunting Nazis which is basically sort of a fictionalized version of Inglorious Bastards to an extent. It is, um, yeah, essentially. Except like in this scene against the Nazis, he burns them with a flamethrower. And um and you also get to see him struggling with learning to use the flamethrower effectively in order to use it properly in the movie and whatever. But then in the the final act, when you see him fighting the Manson family, one of them ends up in his pool and he just like marches off to the garage, grabs the flamethrower and just burns her to a crisp right there in his own backyard. 
it's yeah. just so wild it's so wild but i love it i love just like that arc for his character when he's just like this is exactly what i have to do right now and just uses all of his flamethrower skills that he's built up to that point it's nice it's like a in terms of like a character arc it's good because there's a lot of um his character rick dalton rick dalton right um yeah yeah. Spends a lot of time, like, not really knowing how to take charge of his life. Like, he's like, I need to, like, revamp my career, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he, like, seems to not know how to do it. And in this moment, mm-hmm. it's, like, pure confidence. Like, he's just, like, he knows what he has to do. Like, <laughs> and he does it. And so, like, it's, like, a nice, like, shift from where he spends, like, most of the the movie, like, being like, I don't know, I'm sad and I, I'm the worst and I'm my career is over, yada, yada, yada. In this moment, he's like, all of his confidence is back, basically. He's just like, yeah. okay, now I must burn this person. He's like, I have the skills, I have the tools, let's eliminate this person right now. He just walks right off, grabs the flamethrower. Right. Which is awesome. It's a great scene. Um, yeah. It's also like, in the middle of that truly bizarre and heinous just like climax of the movie um which features some of tarantino's like most explicit and like maybe gratuitous violence um yeah (laughs) you can like feel tarantino's like righteous anger coming out in this scene like he's mad um he's mad that this this incident happened so when the revenge is happening like it's clearly like kind of personal for tarantino um (laughs) i'd say that's what makes this like a revenge movie similar to the other ones in that he has like he very clearly wants to show the people like specifically who inflicted this immense amount of pain on members of hollywood like uh, sharon tate um he wants to show those specific people getting punished very severely um so he makes sure you know like it's tex watson here it's um it's that all those people who are right there at the tate murders and they're getting like absolutely brutally beaten and like burned to death and slashed to death or whatever by members of Hollywood, like stuntmen and actors and whatever, like that, that's what makes this a revenge movie for Tarantino is that these are members of Hollywood taking revenge on the Manson family who victimize members of Hollywood. Right. Absolutely. Completely agree with that. 100%. Um, which I also think is just what makes it like a worthwhile movie. Like it's, I mean, I feel like the personal stakes are welcome. It's nice to see Tarantino. Like this is something that he like very clearly is passionate about. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's like, it only helps the movie uh, in every way. Now that last scene might've been like a little violent for some people, but <laughs> um, cause it's yeah. like, I mean, it's rough. <laughs> it, gets, it gets wild real fast. I gotta say, like, the rest of the movie, compared to other stuff you'll see from Tarantino, is pretty tame. Like, this is one of the less violent Tarantino movies there is. And yet, but that last, that last third of the movie is, like, that's pretty rough. There's a lot that goes on there, including, like, 
flamethrower stuff. So it gets pretty rough. It uh, it does. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of face bashing and dogs ripping people apart. Oh, the dog stuff. Yeah. Ugh. Dogs. But I do think it works. I think it works as like his like his fantasy and his like revenge fantasy of what could have and should have been, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So basically like the the whole plot of the movie is like what if instead of um the Manson family attacking this house that had, you know, Sharon Tate and some of her friends who are all like you know, drunk and asleep and whatever, and just not ready for that. What if instead they went next door and this super hopped up stunt man and his actor friend who was feeling a bit slighted and like ready to go were there and they were all just like ready to rumble. What if that like, and it is basically a Hollywood revenge fantasy. Like what if, the like the best possible scenario would happen and Hollywood had a chance to take revenge on the Manson family and these people who inflicted pain upon the Hollywood community. Right. Especially like the last third of the movie, but there's also a lot else going on in the movie as well. Like you get to see Rick Dalton's search for a meaning in his career. Like, um, he feels like like, on the same token that he's like empowering this like revenge fantasy for hollywood like rick dalton's arc is almost like can be read as like a criticism of the hollywood machine right like like it's like the moment he starts getting like a little older like his career is waning like he gets typecast quickly like yeah you know Mm -hmm. um i think that um i think that tarantino is both you know like looking back on like the glory days of Hollywood and loving it and wishing that things hadn't had to end. And so as a result, taking out his revenge on this group that can be perceived as like bringing down like an end to a certain era of Hollywood, you know? Yeah. Um, And then at the same time, he's saying like, but you know, Hollywood is not perfect. Like this guy, like his career is like really hurting and it doesn't necessarily need to, like he's not old. Um, (laughs) Like, and so I, I think that's an interesting just like dynamic there that he sets up. Yeah. Now it shows how like he, you know, he was someone who was like a big star for a few years. He was on TV and everything. And he's been trying to make his way back to like the top tier sense, but everyone just knows him as this one character and other shows that'll cast him will just try to make him the villain so that he can get beaten by the new hero. And therefore that makes a new hero look strong, but it makes him look weaker. And every year he goes by, he just looks less and less like the, like the hero he used to be. But you can see in like some of those scenes that they show, he still has the ability. He still has like this incredible acting talent um they they show this great scene where he's um he's like the villain and he's got this little girl held captive and he's just showing off all of his acting range in the scene you can tell like he's supposed to be a great actor um but he's being 
sort of held back by what he's done in his past. And just the basic message of this sort of movie is like, um, you know, like these, these people, they may come and go in Hollywood, but they're still like an intrinsic part of it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, especially with Rick Dalton and his stunt man, you know, they, they're definitely at this point in time, they're sort of on the downswing. They're not big stars. They're not um, huge, important people in Hollywood. And yet they're in this timeline. They're the ones who stop Sharon Tate from getting murdered. They're the ones who stop this big crime against Hollywood from being inflicted. And that's, so what happens in the final scene here is uh, Rick Dalton gets invited up to Sharon Tate's house and like they're just hanging out together. And the implication is like maybe this is like a big moment in Rick Dalton's career. He's going to start getting bigger roles again because he knows Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski will be grateful and like we'll give him roles in the next movie by Roman Polanski and he'll just get bigger from there. Um, so this, this idea that like, even, even when they're on the outs, they can still have a big impact and rise up again from that. Right. Yeah. I mean, they quite literally fight their way back into, into like the main Hollywood circle, right? Like by getting, by saving Sharon Tate's life, essentially, although she didn't really know that they were saving her life, but, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, Sort of. It's also interesting how like it ends and when when he's like at the intercom like, oh, it's your neighbor. She's like, Rick Dalton. Um, (laughs) So it's like it's like even if he is like sort of a has been like. Hey, he's not really like everybody still knows his name. Yeah, everybody knows like at least his character, who he was on TV. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I also do love the explanation for. um why in this situation the Manson family would go and try to attack Rick Dalton as opposed to Sharon Tate. Like they were originally supposed to attack the Sharon Tate house just as a matter of what they were ordered to do because uh, Terry Melcher used to live in that house and they were like, just go, go kill whoever's in that house where Terry Melcher used to live. And then like they showed up and in this version of reality, Rick Dalton just fucking yells at them <laughs> for like <laughs> 10 minutes when they show show up. And because they made so much noise coming up, he's like, get the fuck out of here. You, you goddamn hippies. You're making so much noise. It's 12 o'clock at night. Get the fuck out of here. And he's like yelling <laughs> at them and shit. And they're like, oh, you know what? Maybe we should take care of that guy. And you know what else like we could because that's rick dalton we could kill our childhood heroes at the same time and like kill that guy and they go in and try to kill him and they get killed off right (laughs) but i did think that was funny that they're like they had a reason for doing it and they're like oh yeah let's let's kill our childhood heroes because they're the ones who taught us to be violent 
yeah, it's weird that like we have this moment where they like have that like weird conversation in the back of the car before they go murder like or try to murder the Tate family where they're like, yeah. oh, you know, like, where did we learn all of this violence from? Hmm. Why don't we take out the people we learned it from? <laughs> yeah. Which is weird because it's like, why don't we use violence to stop violence, which has never worked. But OK. Yeah. But it's like at the very end of it all. You know, they, they've targeted the Dalton house as opposed to the Tate house. Sharon Tate and her or like her friends and everyone don't even know that they were at risk here because no, they have no like idea. Everyone, everyone who dealt with it was on like Rick Dalton's house, him and Brad Pitt's character and everyone, they all had to fight that fight. But it's nice. Like at the end of it, you see, you know, Rick Dalton invited up to Sharon Day's house and you get the feeling like things are on the upswing for him. Like not only did he defeat this threat towards Hollywood, but his career is going to be improved from here on. And like things are only going to get better. Absolutely. Yeah. I I definitely feel like you get that sense. It's like a, it's a very heartwarming almost ending, even though we've just seen like somebody get their face bashed in on a fireplace. (laughs) But like we've seen some very brutal murders, but they're, they're definitely people who deserved it. So it's, it's hard not to feel excited at the end. And they make them as like annoying as possible. Like, These characters, they're, like, the absolute worst humans. Like, like a lot of it is, like, also, like, weirdly, like, I don't want to say cynical, but it is, like, it's, like, this weird, like, hot take on, like, celebrity culture almost, even, like, and, like, following celebrities, like, because they're, like, wow, that's Rick Dalton? Wow, you know what? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and it's, like, Let's they kill him. They kind of sound like, like, Twitter teens, like, <laughs> like... The whole time. Um, yeah. I also like do. the one who like runs away. She's like, oh yeah, I just forgot my knife in the car. Let me go back. And then she takes the car and leaves. Um, and they're like, oh fuck. Okay. <laughs> and they're like, we're still going to do it. And like, we get to see um the one guy's like infamous, like I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work line. But it's just like yeah. hilariously stupid. Like the way it's played. Like, yeah. Like, no, because I, I love it because so first of all, Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, is supposed to be also tripping on acid in that scene. Yes. But obviously, as we know, the Manson family, when they showed up to do this murder, were also tripping on acid. Um and <laughs> like they both they all show up and like Tex Watson is trying to be all intense. Cause he's like, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work. And Cliff is like, no, nah, no, nah, that wasn't it. Like, I, I know you before your, your name is like, like Texas or something like that. No, he I, says I it was something you. stupid, like Rex, <laughs> something stupid, like Tex or something like that. Rex or something. Like, oh, Tex. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. And like, they both like weird each other out a couple times in that scene through like acid stuff just being like whoa whoa who 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 <laughs> and 
but I just think that's that's so funny that they put that in there. He, he's like that that Cliff Booth was also on acid during this part of it. <laughs> that he was just like totally ready to deal with all this weird shit that was about to happen. He was like, hey. Oh, I, I remember you. You're that weird guy from the ranch, huh? <laughs> he has like no compunction about it. He's just like, ah, hey, this is what's happening now. Okay. Well, to be fair, he's like high as fuck. Like <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he's just like he's just high as fuck. He's just like just ready to deal with whatever happens. And including like just absolutely beating the shit out of some people who came there to just murder people. Right. <laughs> We've covered most of um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character and Brad Pitt's character. Those are the basics of it. But I I do feel like we should make a special mention of uh, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate here. Uh, I do think that her part in the movie was really amazing and very important um, because she did play probably the most prominent murder victim of the Manson case. And obviously in this, yes. <laughs> this version of the scenario, she, she survives, but it is very touching to, to see her portrayal through these scenes, even before like her eventually surviving the whole ordeal. Um, her main role in this movie up till the night of what would eventually be the incident is her, you know, showing her relationship with Roman Polanski, explaining how her and JC bring broke up and then she ended up dating and then marrying Roman Polanski. But also there's a very important scene that shows her watching one of her own movies in a movie theater. And this scene I think is just absolutely incredible and will be a very important scene going forward, just in terms of discussing how cinema works and how it relates to the general movie going public. I just thought the scene was incredible. Yeah, I think this scene is absolutely uh, stunning. I think it's it definitely like takes on a different light when you've seen the whole movie and when you're actively watching it. Like when I was actively watching it, I felt like um, there was like a lot of sadness in it. I think uh, because she just looks like so happy. Um, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Um, she's in this movie theater watching um, one of her like early starring roles. I mean, all of them are kind of early. She didn't have a but so long career obviously um yeah and like she's watching this audience genuinely love her performance and i think um it's really moving to watch that because you know what happens to real life sharon tate um i think that's i think that's really tragic and i think it's it's can be hard to watch in the moment and of course like for her and her character in the movie everything turns out okay um but I do think it's one of like the more emotionally moving and touching moments in the film, uh, a film that's otherwise maybe not emotionally touching in the same way. Like a lot of the film is like 
funny and like brash and violent like um not necessarily (laughs) like moving um and i think what makes a scene move moving is just like going in knowing the story because and it's a testament to margot roby's like performance that you just like instantly you just want sharon tate to be happy in this movie like (laughs) she seems so genuine and earnest um yeah she doesn't even do much she just like has a warm smile and she's like I don't know. I'm just doing my job and I'm happy. Um, it's like, you just, it's such a, like a marked difference from Leonardo DiCaprio's like constant, like turmoil and anger. Like you're like, man, I just want, I want her star to keep rising. Um, and so like in that moment, it's hard not to think about like what really happens after that. Yeah. It's like Rick Dalton's character is just a constant need for recognition. You know, he's, he's felt, the the um success of stardom he's felt what it is like to be pretty much at the top of his career and he's trying to recapture that trying to keep that alive but for uh the sharon tate character here she's just like on the very upswing of her career she shows up at this movie theater and she's like, do you recognize me? Like I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in this movie. Like, come on. She's trying to get into the movie for free. Like, you know, like she could probably afford to pay to get into the movie, but she wants to get into it on her own recognizance just to, you know, sort of prove that she is somebody that she is uh, like a star that people can recognize. And eventually she does get into the movie and oh but the large part of this scene is just her sitting in the audience reacting to this movie but also reacting to how the audience reacts to it just seeing what they enjoy seeing like do they think that my part was funny do they think that like this part of the movie was good do they enjoy the part that i was in and like every part that she was in that they laugh at or they, they make a noise that they enjoy. She just smiles more and she enjoys it. And it's very clear. She just, she really lives off of this feedback from the audience that is telling her like, you're doing the right thing. You're being a success. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course she does. And I think that that's like, yeah, I think it's very sweet that she like, is excited by watching an audience be happy with her performance. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a really cool moment. I think it's like a, a sort of nod to like, just like the film industry workers, like life, like obviously anybody who works in film wants people to be happy with yeah. <laughs> the product they're putting out, you know? Definitely. So I think it's like a nice, like testament to just like, just like what it means and feels like to be like somebody who works in this industry where it's like, your work is put out there so that everybody can very publicly watch it. And this is a person who enjoyed like a lot of success with that. And like people loved what she did. Um, So it's like a nice, it's just a nice little moment. I think it like serves as like a good, like, I don't know, like catch all nod to the film industry. Like, and like, I mean like the, the power of the film industry. Like, I mean, like she is like in this audience in a movie about some of the most like gross and weird murders that have happened in popular 
consciousness um like there's this like really sweet moment about just like even if what happened to her was terrible in the end like what she did by being an actress and the power that that has and um the way that that brings people together and makes both her and an entire audience extremely happy yeah i definitely agree now i feel like this is this is like an opportunity for tarantino to show what sharon tate maybe felt on the upswing of her career you know being able to enjoy the just what what people felt when they were moved by her performances just being able to feel the enjoyment that she brought to everyone and like by extension just what being an actor or actress or just anyone who's involved in filmmaking, what that can bring to your life, like in terms of value, right? Um, how like that could, wh- why that would be a motivating factor towards you wanting to be involved in Hollywood essentially. And by showing Sharon Tate specifically someone like on the upswing you get to see just like all the benefits of someone who might have been nobody a year ago and now is someone who's been in this movie been in that movie and now they're trying to see is this worth anything you know right is this is this worth spending my life doing but right and it, it and it's an interesting contrast when you you show it against someone like the Rick Dalton character who's been doing this for years and is also starting to doubt like is this worth my time like do people still care to see me on the screen or whatever and you get to see his eventual coming around after he really puts in the full effort and absolutely sees himself as a like a fully realized actor he that that like that one scene where he's he's filming um he's he's filming some old western thing and he's supposed to be the villain and he's got this this girl that he's supposed to help captive and it just it's super powerful and like towards the end of it he like breaks down crying and like you can tell like he's been putting so much into this but he's actually finally like feels like he deserves this you know right through all this you can see sort of what these characters their relationship to hollywood and acting yeah no i do i i completely agree with that yeah i mean yes absolutely there's definitely a lot that happens in this movie. Uh, it's hard to hard to describe all of it completely, but just the the main vibe of the movie is just incorporates a lot of um, like '60s um, sort of Hollywood references. Just all the music and stuff I found really interesting. Yeah, the music and, was great. I love I uh, love the music like, choices in this movie. I really liked especially how like when they were driving, like doing a long driving scene, they wouldn't try to just like sort of gloss all over it with one song. If they did a cut, 
they'd introduce another song as if the character was still listening to the radio, but it was a different song now, you know, and right. as a result, you get to hear a lot more music that was evocative of the era. And there was just, there's so much stuff that they tried to do that would just root you in the era. Like just every sign and every building alongside the road was completely transformed. Like I've read so much about how, like what great efforts they went into to uh, transforming the street sides for these movie for this movie. Um, it's really incredible. I mean, leave it to Tarantino to spare no expenses for that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> no expense was spared. Uh, That's extremely on brand for him. So it, it really is. Yeah, but I I do think it's incredible. I think it's a great recreation of the era. Um, and for Tarantino, it feels like it's been something he's been building up to for a while. Um, he's definitely got just an obsession with like sixties and seventies Hollywood and for him to finally make a movie specifically about that is basically the culmination of a career for him. Yeah, it sort of is. It It felt like it had been coming for a while. So it was nice to finally see this sort of movie from him. Yeah. And and he's got, you know, some of the best actors and actresses to be in this as well. So Well, yes, that's nothing new for him though. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he's good at that. <laughs> he is. He sure is. Um but yeah, you know, it it's good to see. I I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, I'm definitely a big Tarantino fanboy, but I felt like this one even went beyond my normal enjoyment of his films. And just like, I, I mean, I enjoy anything that's about Hollywood. It's about like these special parts of time, like the sixties. Um, I find that those parts of time interesting and I want to know more about them. And I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed being able to get a window into this point in time. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed that too. And I, I mean, I loved most things about this movie. I thought it was great. So. Yeah. It's getting a lot of great reviews. I'd say, you know, even if you're not a typical fan of Tarantino, you still might want to check this one out. It's not as violent as some of his other movies have been. The third act is definitely a little violent, but it doesn't it doesn't yeah, really most have movie isn't as violent as some of his other movies, but then the yeah. third act is more violent than any of his other movies. So Yeah. But also like nothing really nothing's ever really like super gritty violent, you know? No, like, no, it's not. I don't feel like anything that happens in this movie surpasses the ear scene in Reservoir Dogs. If you know what I mean? Yes. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I feel like this movie is fairly accessible in terms of the level of violence and cruelty or whatever. I think a lot of people would enjoy this 
and it's getting a lot of great reviews. Yes. I agree. I don't know. It's, I always enjoy seeing a movie about the movies and nobody is more well-equipped to make something like this than Quentin Tarantino. So. Maybe Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Uh, he can do it too. Yeah. That's uh, one of his things. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I suppose there, there have been a few filmmakers over the years to do something like this. Um, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think it happens every so often with especially like big name directors who are indebted to a lot of like the past of Hollywood. Yeah, you know, like um, Antonioni sort of did stuff like this and Fellini would like to do self-referential uh, Hollywood stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, it's been a while since we've seen a really good self-referential Hollywood picture. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I feel like this one really covers it pretty well. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. And just the performances in this movie are fucking fantastic. They are. Like, you, you can't get past... Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and some of the stuff he does in this movie. It's just insane. Yeah, he's incredible. Unbelievable. He like he manages to encapsulate so purely the actor who's really trying to get back in the swing of things to not be a failure or wash out. And at the same time, he manages to act out these scenes that his character is supposed to be acting out to great effect of course brad pitt is a lot of fun <laughs> his character is a little more goofy he gets to play you know a stunt double who's a little washed up and spends does... most of his time just making jokes yeah uh he's he's doesn't always take everything so seriously he's like yeah i guess i fucked up then <laughs> you know he'll be like <laughs> He'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll see why they didn't want me on that set, whatever. Um, but he's he's still he's still with it when he needs to be. He still is like, hey, now I'm going to go check out that what's going on in that farmhouse, whether you like it or not. You know, <laughs> and it's great. And and Margot Robbie is obviously fantastic. And it's great to see her giving life to Sharon Tate. Right. Um, and who's really the person that this movie's all about that they're trying to, you know, give her some sort of justice. And right. I, I think that's fantastic. And she does a great job of it. She really does. Um, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. All around. I think this movie, it's, it's fun. It's scary at times. It's funny. at a lot of times it's just a really enjoyable movie. And I think, it's probably one of Tarantino's most accessible movies in a long time. So I really, really encourage everyone to go see this movie. Absolutely. I, everyone. I don't, I don't think I'd hold anything back unless like, I don't know, you're under 15 or something like go see this movie. Right. Absolutely. hundred yes. percent. Yes. So yeah, check it out. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? 
tonight? Uh, not that I can think of, no. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we're good. Um, yeah, I think so. We know it's been a little while since the last one. Um, stuff happens. Life happens, unfortunately. It, <laughs> uh, it keeps happening, unfortunately. But we're still here. We're still watching movies. We'll always get back to you when we can. We're going to try to get back to you more frequently from now on. Um, but we still have the same drive that keeps us going, the same drive to give you our honest opinion on what's coming out in the movie theater. So have no fear. We still have just as much need to blab on you as we <laughs> Oh, we sure do. Yeah. So until next time, we'll see you at the movies. We'll see you at the movies.